everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to the very first episode of the new Research in Scottish History podcast. My name is Carrie Schultz, and I'll be the host for the series. I recently completed my PhD at Queen's University Belfast on political thought and Protestant intellectual culture in the Scottish Revolution from 1637 until 1651. I am particularly interested in how royalists and covenanters use continental European political ideas to address their unique ecclesiological concerns. But I knew that I wanted this podcast series to be about more than my own research interests into religious, intellectual, and early modern history. So the idea behind it is to have a monthly interview-style episode highlighting just some of the fantastic research being done in all areas of Scottish history. I've been so grateful for everyone who has already shown interest and support for this series, which is still very much a work in progress. But thanks so much for joining along for this very first episode. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Claire McNulty. Claire was recently awarded a doctorate in history from Queen's University Belfast, where she completed a thesis on the experience of discipline in parish communities in Edinburgh, 1638 to 1651. Claire was a Folger Scholar in 2018-2019 and is currently co-organizing a paleography course in conjunction with the Folger Shakespeare Library and Queen's University Belfast in summer 2021. Thanks so much, Claire, for joining us today. Thanks so much, Carrie, for, uh, for having me. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your research into church discipline. So just to kick off here, could you start by telling us a bit about what your doctoral research was on? And then hopefully that won't bring back too many memories of your recent Viva. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, once we're not going for a Viva part two here, I'm uh, I'm quite happy. And <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, for my research and um, for my thesis, I looked at ordinary people in parish communities in Edinburgh uh, from 1638 to 1651. And I focused on the experience of discipline. So I wanted to know how discipline was implemented in this period and how it was perceived by ordinary people. So I looked at the Kirk Session records for a number of different parishes in Edinburgh um, to try and get an understanding again of how discipline functioned and then how ordinary people responded uh, to discipline from from one uh, locality to the next. So what prompted you to focus on Edinburgh specifically as opposed to other areas of Scotland? For me, I thought that the regional studies um, of the Reformation worked quite well. So I'm thinking here of um, historians such as John McCallum and Michael Graham and Margaret uh, Sanderson. So I thought those historians did a really great job of mapping out um, the Reformation in specific localities and um, they did a great job at kind of pinpointing specific moments of change. Um, So I wanted to do something like that for Edinburgh. Now obviously we have um, Michael Lynch's Edinburgh and the Reformation but that focuses on um, the formative years of the Reformation and I wanted to see what church discipline was like in the more mature years and so I decided to look at Edinburgh in 1638 and I suppose another reason for for choosing Edinburgh was that I thought it was the epicenter of the Covenanter movement so in terms of like where ideas were being circulated and we have records of these kind of emotional responses to the signing of the National Covenant Um, you know, people uh, sleeping in the Kirk over the weekend so that they could uh, hear the Covenant being read. And 
some people signing, some men signing the document in blood. And, and just, it seemed like a very emotional experience for people of Edinburgh. And I just wanted to know what were the implications on discipline and what was the impact on kind of the everyday discipline for ordinary people in Edinburgh, I suppose. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm really excited to come back to that a bit later and sort of unpack differences perhaps that you saw in parishes within Edinburgh. But for now, for those of us who aren't familiar with maybe early modern history or religious history or church history, could you just explain why church discipline was so important in Scotland in this period? I mean, discipline was important uh, from the get-go of the uh, of the Reformation in Scotland. Um, I suppose Scotland was defined by the fact that the early reformers made discipline a defining feature of their doctrine and um, so I think that was quite important and something that separated them from other reformed um, communities in Europe so discipline really was at the center of um, the reformation from the earliest days of the movement in Scotland um, I think it becomes nearly more important in 1638 upon the signing of the National Covenant because um, the reformers were making a renewed commitment to God um, and by virtue of this to a godly way of life. So for me, I just wanted to understand, well, what were the implications on discipline if, you know, these these covenanters were demonstrating this renewed commitment to God? What was the impact on uh, on moral reform? One of the first things that strikes me when you're talking about the godly community and the creation of a godly nation is the idea of what sinful behavior would have been. So what type of sins did you frequently see coming up in the session records? And did these vary by location? I think when people think about uh, the Kirk sessions or when they think about the consistory records of Europe, um, one of the most common sins was fornication. Um, and that's the kind of the go-to when we think about um, yeah, one of the most prevalent sins. But when I looked at different parishes across Edinburgh, I found that there was an array of um, offences being committed uh, by, by people and that these did vary from one location to the next. So say, for instance, in uh, South Lee. So Leith was um, Edinburgh's busiest uh, trade port. And in this particular parish, the newly appointed minister in 1639 had had a huge issue with trying to get people to attend the weekly and, and Sunday sermons. So I suppose the issue there was that people were prioritising their labours over, uh, over church going. And for this new minister in Southley, that was a major issue. So that was something that he really tried to, to combat. And then I found in the likes of uh, St. Cuthbert's that again, there was an issue with fornication, but that this was kind of particularly common amongst um, servant uh, classes in, in this particular parish. And I suppose um, that had a lot to do with the fact that people were getting married, you know, later and they were taking up servitude in households while they kind of, you know, tried to establish themselves within uh, within the economy. So um, you have like fornication amongst uh, servant classes. But in St. Cuthbert's, I also found that there was a lot of people bringing cases of slander uh, to their to their session. So um, this was like, you know, an affront to somebody's um, honour. And uh, this is something that a lot of parishioners, particularly women, um, seem to 
uh, take up. So, you know, they would go to the session and say that this person had slandered against them, I suppose, in the hope of restoring uh, their their reputation or, you know, getting some sort of resolution from this. And then I found in areas like the Canongate, so the Canongate would have been known as um, a notorious red light district, but apart from whatever sexual immorality that was rife in the Canongate, there was also other issues as well, such as um, charming and superstitious belief and uh, remnants of uh, Catholicism as well. So yeah, I found I found there was an array of fences and I found that um, these really varied uh, from one locality to the next. So I'm quite interested in the variation of the case studies that you picked. Did you notice any difference in church discipline based on an urban or a rural setting? Yeah, well, I noticed, um, say, in St. Cuthbert's was, was a more rural setting and it was also a very poor parish. And the St. Cuthbert session spent a lot of time administering uh, poor relief. And, you know, the people who received poor relief changed from one week to the next because, as historians like John McCallum have noted, poverty in the early modern period wasn't necessarily a fixed state of being and people could find themselves in financial difficulty at one point in the year and then, you know, get by at other points in the year. So um, I found that St. Cuthbert's spent a lot of their time administering uh, poor relief. So I think that was something that they really had to consider when they were administering discipline. Um, And it's something that not only St. Cuthbert's, but that other parishes took into consideration as well. You know, if they were punishing someone for sermon absence or fornication, they would say so-and-so was, you know, made to repent publicly um, and not find because they were being but poor. There's a lot of there's a lot of reference to to things like that. You know, you get those regional variations, but then there's a difference in how people are disciplined depending on the seriousness of their offence um, and whether they had committed any prior uh, sins as well. So, um, if someone was uh, like you know, say again in the Canongate, you get references to someone um you know who maybe was involved in uh, prostitution and they're you know labeled all sorts of derogatory kind of terms but their form of punishment would be quite severe and um, by comparison to somebody who had just kind of absented from the sermon so um women uh, accused of whoredom would be uh, branded on the cheek and like banished from the town or they would m- be made um stand you know on the stool of repentance in sackcloth wearing these white paper hats and on the paper hat the word whore would be written um i suppose for everyone um to to see you mentioned sermon attendance quite frequently as a sin And so now I'm imagining, you know, ministers kind of doing roll call or something right before the sermon starts. But what about other sinful behaviors? How would ministers and elders become aware of perhaps the sins that their members had committed? Was there a gossip network going around and did members often tell on each other or how did that work? So um, I think, yeah, the idea of gossip is very important Um, and people were reporting on their neighbours and even their family members um, in discretion. So I had one very interesting case of a servant who testified against her master. And then I had another case of a mother who um, presented before the session and was complaining because her son 
had um, married someone that she didn't approve of you know you're relying on kind of individuals themselves to to self-monitor and report any indiscretions to the session and then and then again you have some very dedicated sessions and session members who would have like the likes of the elders and um, who would have gone out onto the streets and listened in on people's conversations for blasphemy and then reported back to um to the session and then that person would be uh, reprimanded um however it was it deemed appropriate so yeah you're you're relying on like individuals whether they're you know reporting on their own family members or whether they're reporting on their neighbors you're relying on a dedicated body of ministers and elders who are you know kind of going out onto the streets and like listening in and entering into people's homes and reporting on indiscretions and and things like that and I mean witnesses were very important as well you know and and then that kind of brings in like the individual and and how important they were in implementing uh, discipline so the session would call in witnesses who were you know maybe there when the offense had happened or uh, could confirm that somebody had said that yes they had fornicated with somebody else you know so or they had witnessed it even so yeah all those things are very important one of the things that strikes me in what you just said is that it seems that there's two levels of kind of control going on so you've got elders and ministers who are out listening for blasphemy and heresy which would probably be indicative of someone's spiritual status or the, the state of their belief but then you also have the average person outside of the church who's using church discipline almost as a means of social control, it seems to me. So trying to, you know, control neighbors or control their own family members, etc. Do you see the average Scot using the church in that way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like on on an individual basis, you see you see that time and time again. Something that I mentioned briefly, but I had one particular case um in Trinity College uh, Parish where there was um, an affair that had happened uh, between this woman and a married man. Um, And as it unfolded, the man's servant kind of presented before the session and testified against him, you know, so you are seeing this, this uptake and, you know, is it, is it a means of social control or is it, are people acting for their own personal reasons? Like, you know, maybe the servant felt threatened by the chance of, you know, her being ousted um, from the house and being replaced by another mistress or, or whatever it was. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like everyone was, you know, acting for their own personal reasons, whether that was spiritual or economic or social or whatever it was. But there, there is definitely evidence of, of people embracing uh, discipline. And just by contrast to that, how did people navigate resisting church discipline? I imagine it would be easy enough to just constantly deny accusations, but did people frequently resist the discipline of the church and how did they do so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, what sometimes happened uh, would, like say, with uh, young uh, women who found themselves single and pregnant um, and who didn't want to conform uh, to church discipline for, you know, whatever, um, for whatever reason. And some of these women like left the parish um, and, and, you know, I would basically escaped, you know, escape church discipline and the ministers would write to neighboring parishes and say, oh, if you find so-and-so, um, send her back um, to our par- parish for a uh, church censure. So it was very hard uh, to kind of get away because then 
again, if something like that happened and say, you know, someone decided, no, they were going to leave this parish and um, to avoid discipline and go somewhere else, they're going to another parish, but they've no testimonial, uh, which was important. So when strangers kind of arrived into a new town, they have to have a testimonial of their good behavior. So if you're like escaping discipline and then, you know, traveling to another community and you've no testimonial, then how, I don't know how that works. Like, how do you become part of, of that community? And I mean, you, you see it in the Canongate. A lot of Canongate inhabitants were found guilty of welcoming strangers, you know, so it's it was like a destination for immorality or for people trying to escape you know they would go here and then the existing Canongate inhabitants proved kind of welcoming of these uh, strangers who didn't have testimonials and that was an issue for the for the Canongate session so that was you know one form of resistance was escaping discipline and um, another one yeah as you, something that you mentioned was denial so um again to go back to the Trinity College case this is the most interesting case that I've come across in the Kirk Session records that I've looked at uh, so basically what happened was this woman uh, Margaret Ucat appeared before the Trinity College Kirk Session and said that she had had an affair with a married man and that she thought she might be pregnant uh, the man in question was John Stewart but John Stewart was already married to Alison Miller so when Margaret arrived in and, and you know, uh, confessed to her sin, she went into great detail and she said that Alison, um, John's wife, had found out about the affair and had found out about the um, suspected illegitimate pregnancy. And she urged Margaret to go to the Canongate to purchase um, an abortion and to terminate the pregnancy. And so obviously this alarmed the Trinity College uh, Kirk session because uh, there's a lot going on here with adultery and abortion and things like that so they called in uh, John Stewart and they put the accusations to him and said you know and um, this woman claims that you know she had an affair with you and that she I uh, think now she might be pregnant and uh, what do you what do you say to these charges and he just denies it and um, it's a very it's a very detailed case it goes on for a few months unfortunately it ends after the few months like those records end completely so I have no idea how the case ended but it's it's very intricate you also have as I mentioned earlier John's servant who who testified against him and said that yeah that John had had an affair with Margaret and you know she was regularly in the house and she witnessed their fornication and um things like that so all the while they're, you know, bringing back in Margaret, getting her to, you know, explain again in great detail what happened. And they're bringing in the uh, the servant and Alison Miller, the the wife as well. And, and of course, they bring in John and say, put these accusations to him time and time again. And he just constantly denies it. So I think that was a very powerful um, mode of resistance because it's as though the session needed an admission of guilt before they could impose a punishment or or bring that person to repentance. So I think that um, yeah, denial was uh, appears somewhat effective in this. Yeah, it's such a shame that you don't have the conclusion to that case, though, because I think yeah. it would be really interesting. I think we all want to know how it ends, yeah. especially because I think this raises really interesting questions about gender and church discipline. So you even mentioned earlier that women who were accused of fornication had to stand publicly wearing clothes that had derogatory terms on them as a form of public shaming, etc. So I'm curious if you notice differences in how men and women were treated in the eyes of the church um, and whether there were gender differences in church discipline. 
So that's a really important point. Um, historians uh, like Michael Graham have said that the Kirk sessions were relatively even handed in their dealing of male and female offenders. And I found that to be true for the most part. But then I kind of wondered if there was even handedness in the implementation of discipline, was there any differences in the experience of discipline between male and female offenders? And I found that in places like St. Cuthbert's that women were most likely to uptake cases of slander and to accuse each other of slander. So that, that gives you kind of a, a different um, a different spin. It, it, I didn't have a huge amount of male offenders um, appearing in St. Cuthbert's um, on charges of slander. It seems to be something that was uh, predominantly taken up by women. So, yeah. So I'd like to just move on to some practical questions about the types of sources that you used. So you've mentioned the Kirk Session records quite a few times. Can you just explain how those sources work and where they're held? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the Kirk Session records are fantastic. Um, they are the lowest level of the church courts in um, in Scotland. We have uh, the Kirk Session records, the uh, Presbytery records, uh, the Synod, and then the, the General Assembly as well. So um, the Kirk Session records are a great insight into how discipline functioned at a local level and how people interacted with discipline. Um, so, you know, this is an insight into people uh, for whom we don't have um, written records and letters or diaries and things like that. And I know the entries are are brief, but I still think that there's so much that we can learn from these records that we wouldn't get or that we don't have anywhere else. So, um, yeah, I think they're hugely significant. They're great. They're, they vary, you know, um, in terms of their condition and their availability. So, uh, the Kirk Session records are held in the National Records of Scotland um, in Edinburgh on Princess Street. Um, for Edinburgh, for this period, there were 14 Kirk Sessions um, which sat within the Presbytery of Edinburgh. But unfortunately, we only have four um, Kirk Sessions that survive for this particular period. So we are limited. But again, you know, the ones that do survive, some are urban, some are rural, Um so we do we still do get a good kind of cross section of what discipline was like in a in a number of uh, locations across edinburgh so they are at the moment they have been uh digitized uh, but they're only available uh within the nrs and i know there are, there's a great effort being made to make these records um available kind of off-site through a subscription service i'm sure um but it would be great, um, you know, if that does happen so that people can access them from anywhere in the world because they really are such a rich, uh, rich source and looking forward to doing more with them in uh, the coming years. Once, once you get your head around the paleography end of it, it's not too bad, but uh, that was um, a bit of a challenge in the beginning. <laughs> ah, yes, secretary hand is everyone's favourite thing after all. But in terms of the Kirk Session records, you've looked primarily at the ones for Edinburgh, but do you know if there are any available for other locations in Scotland? Yeah, so I mostly looked at the ones for Edinburgh. I know John McCallum looked at um, a number of records for Fife, and Margot Todd looked for looked at a number of uh, Kirk Session records. Um, you know, and particularly she focused as well on on Perth. So um, that's why I think those the regional approach is really worthwhile, and um, the more case studies that we can build up 
I think the more we'll understand the lived experience of religion and how this varied um, from from one part of Scotland to the next. And just the last question here to finish off, if anyone wants to learn more about this um, and your upcoming work, do you have any sources that you might direct them towards? Yeah, sure. I have a chapter uh, forthcoming um, in an edited volume with Boydell and Brewer. Um, So it's with the St. Andrew's Studies in Scottish History series. And the editors for that are Chris Langley, Catherine Macmillan and Russell Newton. So um, there's a number of... uh, chapters um in this volume on the clergy in early modern scotland so um you know there's chapters written by michelle brock uh john mccallum janie nugent michael graham and then an afterward with uh jane dawson so i'm in a uh, good company there and i'm really looking forward to to coming out it should be out in the next year or so hopefully all going well <laughs> well i'm sure we will all keep an eye out for that volume it sounds really fantastic So thanks so much again, Claire, for coming on to the podcast episode today and for sharing all about your research. I found it really interesting and I hope the listeners did as well. So thank you again. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was great to to chat about everything. So that brings us to the end of the very first episode of the new Research in Scottish History series. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and enlightening as I did. There is a really great and diverse lineup for the next few months, as well as other big plans for the months after that. But as I mentioned before, this podcast is very much a work in progress at the moment, so if you have any comments or suggestions at all, please do feel free to find either me or the podcast page on Twitter. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd be happy to hear from you. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to speaking to you again next month.